Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. So in today's discussion, what we're going to do is to start at the beginning, and that relates to firstly relevance, and then we'll start talking about how we deal with witnesses. In particular, we'll look at examination in chief and hopefully we'll get up to cross-examination, but it depends um, how quickly we work through. Before we begin, best tips in relation to what to do with the material that you've been given. You might remember that you have material by way of slides, PowerPoint slides, and in my view, these cover the basic points, the ground rules and the main provisions. Now, what you make of those slides and what you make of the law that I'm just about to discuss is a matter for you. I can't help but wonder where the best practice might be that a time that's reasonably contemporaneous with watching or listening to this, you might want to go to the source documents, which are the legislation, so the um, actual sections themselves. And I encourage you to use the Judicial College of Victoria extracts in relation to each area of law to have a good look at the overview. The Judicial College extracts are far, far more detailed than you would ever need. And so looking at these slides, they are perhaps the minimum that you might need competently to answer a question, any question that could be asked. But if you would prefer to look at the source material, do so while the material that we've discussed is fairly fresh in your mind, because my experience is that within a matter of days after listening to uh, a discussion, your memory of the detail that's been discussed will fall away fairly quickly. Once you've done that time after our discussion, you can adapt, um, add to, substitute, switch around the, the content on those slides or make your own slides. And then they need to be added to the mix of slides that you'd start looking at if you're following Matt's suggestion and the others actually said the same thing. You need to commit the days that you're not doing active working up of slides simply to read through each of the slides that you've prepared. You might read through them a hundred times. That was what our, um, our peers had suggested last week. And so there are days where you spend an hour working up slides and then they just need to be added to the mix because time doesn't really allow for the revisitation of old law. Now, these are just tips and tricks. So the process that you will follow is a matter for you. The one that I'd probably deter you from is just listening, absorbing in the moment, and then not actually doing any follow-up to consolidate the knowledge that you might have at the time that you have a look at these slides, listen to this discussion, and then um, do your own work. If you're not doing any consolidation, then it will quickly fall out of your memory. And my suggestion to you was always to try to commit as much as you possibly could to working memory. Now, the objective might be to spend about 10 weeks on the law, three hours a week, a few hours outside, and then a daily revisitation of all of the law that we've had a look at then that will allow a solid six weeks or um, even less, four weeks to go through practice problems. So understand what the law is before you start attempting practice problems. Um, it's fine if you want to confine your knowledge to a particular area and develop an understanding of that area, by which I mean once we've finished evidence, you can start addressing evidence problems, but you'll actually have sufficient time just to dedicate to exam technique uh, at the end if you follow along in time. Now, we were looking at relevance and exclusionary discretions first. And firstly, thanks where thanks is due. Alice Meredith and Chris Cooper were the authors of today's slides and we owe them a debt of gratitude. Uh, no doubt you'll each get your turn to contribute to the common pool. When it comes to relevance, we're not even at the point of having called a witness and we're not at the point of looking at a particular document. We're simply looking at that ground rule, which is the absolute um, impediment or process by which evidence can be adduced in any matter. So relevance is the gateway for the further discussion. It won't always be beneficial to visit each question starting with relevance. So most of the questions, if not all of them, are going to assume that the evidence is relevant. But from time to time, you'll get a question that overtly asks 
is this admissible? And it's designed to encourage you to start thinking about that absolute ground rule of relevance. So the way that it appears to have been tested in past years is it doesn't require you to start each question by saying, oh, the tendency evidence is clearly relevant. Instead, if it's a tendency question, you move directly to tendency provisions. But from time to time, it seems that you'll see an outlier where a question will be asked by the examiner that asks, is this evidence admissible? And it doesn't seem to fall within any of the particular exclusionary rules. And so that will oblige you to consider that first question, which is whether the evidence is relevant. Now, as far as relevance is concerned, um, the AWISE uh, professor, Jonathan Clough, in teaching me many years ago, used to say that you see relevance as being the on-ramp to the freeway of the principles of evidence. So unless evidence is relevant, then it will not be allowed to enter the freeway. So it is a no-go zone, do not admit, do not uh, come onto the freeway. You see every other rule of evidence and procedure as being exit ramps from the freeway. So there's lots and lots of analogies that um, I've gathered and my peers have gathered. These are the um, you, my peers, but uh, lecturers and um, other senior lawyers have gathered. And that's an absolute beauty. So if we see relevance as being the on-ramp to the freeway, each of the other rules of evidence exit ramps from the freeway and assume that entry has already been gained to the freeway. So if you're being asked about one of the exit ramps, you don't need to talk about the on-ramp, but if and only if you can't really see where it falls into any of the exit ramps, then you talk about that on-ramp. The rules that need to be mentioned are picked up in the slide. So basically, we um, the starting point is sections 55 and 56 of the Evidence Act. And if you're asked a question that requires you to evaluate relevance, you need to look at 55 and 56 and, and you would refer to those provisions in your analysis and your answer. You just do them very quickly. But section 55 essentially indicates that evidence that's relevant in a proceeding is evidence that if the jury accepted it, which is none of the trial judge's business, could rationally affect directly or indirectly the assessment of the probability of the existence of a fact and issue in the proceeding. My analysis, editorial comment. Direct is direct evidence. So evidence that could rationally affect directly the assessment of the probability is direct evidence, which I'll get to in a moment. Evidence that could rationally affect indirectly the assessment of the probability is circumstantial evidence, which is also referred to as indirect evidence. So evidence can either be directly relevant or circumstantial evidence is indirectly relevant. Plus 55.2, watch this space. Evidence can also be relevant as to the credibility of a witness. The last editorial comment is, let me rephrase 55.1 and ask the question another way, which is, Evidence is relevant if it makes a fact an issue any more or less likely. So my rephrasing of 55.1 is evidence is relevant if it makes a fact an issue any more or less likely. The next question is always going to be, what are the facts in issue in the proceeding? So when it comes to breaking down section 55 and reconstructing it in an exam answer, we need to consider 55 and 56 evidence that's relevant is admissible. Next thing is, well, how is it relevant? Depends on the facts in issue, depends on whether it's direct or indirectly relevant. And next is, what are the facts in issue in the proceeding? They will depend on the charge in a criminal case and they'll depend on the pleadings in a civil case. So editorial notes to add to this slide and perhaps to construct your own slide would be around making sure that you know what the provisions are, making sure that you know what direct evidence is and indirect relevance, and making sure that you can quickly and comfortably identify what the facts and issue are in the proceeding. You don't need to know the elements of every single criminal or civil charge in the world, but you can make a reasonable fist of if it's negligence, then you'll be looking at certain elements and therefore the facts and issue and therefore the matters which underpin the facts in issue and in a criminal case likewise. So you need to be calm or at least appear to be calm if you can't actually be calm about mustering those facts. And section 56, if evidence is irrelevant, it's inadmissible, the end. So I would suggest noting to self-direct evidence, noting self-circumstantial evidence and holding up your sleeve credibility evidence, which we'll have to get to in the next discussion. There's a little bit of background. Um, please note that where we consider relevance, we're still talking about the on-ramp to the freeway, which is fine. 
Eventually, we'll get to discretionary exclusions, which talk about probative value and prejudice. If you're using the freeway analogy, then the probative value of evidence is essentially the speed at which the car is hurtling towards its goal. So evidence which is of a higher probative value is going to be sort of a faster and smoother ride down the freeway. So some parts of the evidence will be more probative and will point more forcefully to the facts and issue in the case or point more forcefully away from the facts and issue in the case, such as in a criminal case where there's some circumstance that points sharply away from guilt. Section 55 indicates that evidence is also relevant if it disproves a fact. So that will uh, be something that you can use in your freeway analogy. It's as if the car is hurtling forcefully in the other direction. And then prejudicial effect is the risk that the jury will be misled in its reasoning process. So we, we want the jury to consider only relevant facts and uh, facts that have sufficient probative value to justify their consideration. Prejudice is the idea that the jury is taking into account cars from another freeway. So work up prejudice as time goes on, but don't mistake fiercely probative value as being inherently prejudicial. So probative is proper use of evidence and prejudice is the risk of misuse of evidence. So sometimes when the candidates are starting to talk about prejudice, they mistake forcefully probative evidence as prejudicial because the jury is likely to convict. That's not the test. Prejudice is that the jury may be misled in their reasoning process. So there are early expressions, relevance, and we've set out that framework, direct and indirect relevance I'll talk to you about in a moment. And then watch this space because we'll come back to probative and prejudicial effect of evidence. That assumes that the evidence is relevant, but it may still be excluded. So a gentle reminder that direct evidence directly proves a fact, okay? With witnesses giving direct evidence, and I'll give you some examples in a moment, the jury's primary task is to assess their credibility. So the way that direct evidence works is a witness gives evidence of what they saw, heard, or otherwise perceived in relation to the facts and issue in the case. So their evidence directly bears on the facts and issue in the case. And the only task for the jury's assessment is their credibility and their reliability. But if they accept the evidence, then it proves a fact and issue in the case. That's what direct evidence is. And I've included some common examples of direct evidence. If you've been in court, particularly in a criminal list, the complainant's evidence in an assault case. So the fact and issue might be, did the accused intentionally cause serious injury to the complainant? And we might hear from the complainant about the serious injury. That's direct evidence of the extent of their injuries, the facts and issue in the particular allegation. Um, as to how that was caused, as to the identity of the accused, the complainant may or may not be able to help. So likewise, in a sexual assault case, the narrative that a complainant would provide is direct evidence of the facts and issue in the sexual assault case. But then we move into a broader ambit. We may have an eyewitness as to who or what caused the outcome. This could, of course, it could be in a civil case as well as criminal. Most of what I tell you applies equally to both cases when it comes to evidence. When it comes to an eyewitness, likewise, the evidence is direct of what they saw, heard or otherwise perceived in relation to the facts and issue in the case. So if the prosecution or the plaintiff is relying on direct evidence to say what happened to whom from a particular eyewitness, the jury's assessment will be as to whether that evidence can be accepted, which focuses on credibility and reliability. Admissions are the accused or uh, one of the parties' direct evidence of their own implication in liability, so also direct evidence. On the other hand, circumstantial evidence is evidence of circumstances from which it's said by one party or another that the fact and issue may be inferred. So it's nuanced and it's a bit different and sometimes difficult to put your finger on it. But it might be that motive is relied upon by the prosecution or the plaintiff in a civil case. 
And motive is one of those circumstances which makes the jury think, oh, that the fact in issue, which is identity, is more likely to be established. Other classic examples of circumstantial evidence include, and I've listed these on the slide to save you the trouble, scientific or forensic evidence. That's commonly misinterpreted as being direct evidence. So like when you hear a DNA quantification, you might hear an expert express a view that it's proportionately more likely that it was the accused that contributed to this um, semen sample, the DNA in the semen, than a person drawn randomly from the community. That's not absolute, though. Instead, the prosecution is inviting the jury to infer that that analysis, consistent with the rest of the prosecution case, proves guilt beyond reasonable doubt. So direct evidence is what a witness saw, heard or otherwise perceived when that is relevant to a fact and issue, direct. Circumstantial evidence is, is a little more nuanced and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to identify, but it's where the jury is being invited to infer from that and other circumstances, also in the context of the direct evidence as to the ultimate fact and issue. Now, any questions or comments, welcome at all times. So as far as these matters are concerned, the like, essentially every time I start speaking, the phone rings and when I do not speak, the phone never rings. So just have a quick look. All right, we'll come back to that. Um, sometimes there are questions asked, as we will see, in relation to how evidence is relevant. And so sometimes you need to just be that, you know, adept on your feet as to figuring out what the facts in issue are. And if you can't quite figure out under the pressure of time whether evidence is direct or circumstantial, then at least you can map out the way that you're thinking, which is the direct evidence is what a witness saw, heard or otherwise perceived in relation to the facts in issue in the case. And circumstances are um, inferred. Um, now, evidence can also separately be relevant to credibility. And let's be clear before we start the credibility discussion, which will be in our next discussion, that where it comes to credibility, the evidence that's led is not led to assist the jury as to any of the facts in issue. So credibility evidence falls outside direct and circumstantial. It doesn't go to a fact in issue. Instead, it purely helps the jury to evaluate the credibility of a witness who is giving direct or circumstantial evidence. So can you just keep as a card up your sleeve that sometimes evidence is relevant to credibility, that's simply not relevant to a fact and issue, instead it assists the jury to evaluate what weight to put on a particular witness's evidence, whether they're giving direct or circumstantial evidence. Um, section 55, there's quite a lot of analysis about the test at common law as to the connection required and the test under section 55 and 56 and some of that, um, including the case law that has been helpfully extracted on the slide. My respectful suggestion to you is if you're trying to find your way in what will be the first of perhaps 200 or 250 nuanced points of law, relevance um, doesn't get any better than the restatement of 55.1 with my editorial comment. So evidence is relevant if it makes a fact an issue any more or less likely. Now, a little iteration that comes up with circumstantial evidence is that the way that the common law used to treat circumstantial evidence was that certain directions needed to be given. We now see the sort of historical remnant of that in that, and now we're up to slide eight, the Hodge direction. Now, the Hodge direction, which is ritually given in criminal cases, relates to what the trial judge tells the jury if circumstantial evidence is relied upon. So it's got two elements. It's been around since 1838, so it's been given many times in many cases. So the way that circumstances work, think about any given case, let's say a sex case, because it involves often a combination of direct evidence, which is what the complainant narrates. And sometimes we hear circumstantial evidence. So there might be, for instance, a scientific analysis of some evidence that might confirm the prosecution says the direct evidence in the case. The jury is given a direction that to find the accused guilty his or her guilt must not only be a reasonable inference, it must be the only reasonable inference which can be drawn from the circumstances. And if the jury considers there's any reasonable explanation of those circumstances which is consistent with innocence, they must find him or her not guilty. 
The point that I want you to note at this stage is, firstly, unless a case is overtly examinable, you don't need to refer to it by name. So the discussion of this part of the law really uh, deep dives into your practice in the future once you have passed this exam, once you have read and once you're a very skilled trial counsel. But point two is that it links back into an acutely examinable topic. So the Hodge direction is given in every trial that involves an element of circumstantial evidence and it really requires the jury to scrutinise the fact that inferences come as a whole from the case. So we don't draw a separate inference from each circumstance. Instead, that they are wrapped into a cord, including the direct evidence. So you consider the circumstances as how they interact with direct evidence. And if the jury is still left with a reasonable doubt at the end of that, they must find the accused not guilty. Else, guilt has been excluded as a reasonable inference. The point at which it becomes examinable is slide nine, bullet point three. So thank you for the indulgence in summarising very close to 190 years of common law. But the situation is now covered by an examinable provision, which is just a little glimmer in our eye at this stage in criminal procedure, the Jury Directions Act. The common law following the Hodge direction asked the jury to consider whether there were any important circumstances which were so important to their reasoning process that they would be called indispensable intermediate links. And if there were any of those indispensable intermediate links, those circumstances needed to be proven to the jury's satisfaction beyond reasonable doubt, which led to decades, if not longer, of lawyers triaging, well, it turned out there was an indispensable intermediate link, therefore a Chamberlain direction should have been given. Could I please foreshadow that um, under the Jury Directions Act, the only matters which a judge can direct the jury must be proved beyond reasonable doubt are the elements of the offence charged or an alternative offence and the absence of any relevant defence. So whilst a, um, a judge would give a Hodge direction, they would then move on to say, but the only matters that must be proven beyond reasonable doubt are the elements of the offence charged. Question, what's an example of such a fact? James, do you mean by that, what's an example of an indispensable intermediate link? Good, I'm glad you asked. I can give you about 14 examples, but I'll try to confine myself to one or two. I'll take two High Court cases. One is the fantastic case of Plomp. In It's fantastic in its capacity as a good example of this uh, teaching scenario or learning scenario. In that case, we had a husband accused of murder and of his wife, and the facts were quite neutral. So it suggested that the wife had drowned at sea, but it, it was suggested that she was a very good swimmer. And so the accused relied on accident. Motive was an indispensable intermediate link. In that case, the High Court considered it to be so important for the jury to be satisfied that he had a motive to kill her, that that was an example of a circumstance which loomed larger in the jury's consideration than the others. Specifically, Plomp had started a liaison with a new girlfriend and had told the new girlfriend that he was a widower at a time when he was still married. So then fortuitously and fairly close in time after that, his wife drowned and he was a widower. So the circumstance of motive was so heavy in the jury's weighing process that the High Court considered it was appropriate to give an appropriate, appropriately tapered direction. This was before Chamberlain, so it wasn't called a Chamberlain direction in those days. Chamberlain itself, Lindy Chamberlain's case, also involved an indispensable intermediate link. That was the murder of the infant at Alice Springs. And one of the circumstances relied upon was the scientific evidence, which was later proven to be incorrect, that there was infant blood in the car. And so that part of the prosecution case was so significant, the jury had to be satisfied that it was infant blood and that the scientist was correct before they could go on and convict Lindy Chamberlain. So sometimes there is, the best analogy really comes back to what I've included on this slide. Depends whether a circumstantial case can be seen as two items connected by a chain and each of the uh, aspects of the chain are heavy links. If there are heavy links, they're in, indispensable intermediate facts like motive. So if motive fails for some reason or the jury has some doubts about it, then the chain falls apart. 
Most circumstantial cases are now under the Jury Directions Act. We always have to see criminal cases instead as involving strands in a cable. So the way that the Jury Directions Act works instead of the common law is you don't need to analyse whether there are indispensable intermediate links in proof. Instead, you see all cases as a combination. So if one strand doesn't uh, satisfy the jury, instead they need to look at the balance of the strands, including the direct evidence. Now, that understanding is actually far more precise than you need. The key learning outcomes relate to direct versus circumstantial, culminating in the fact that it's only now the elements of a charge that need to be proven beyond reasonable doubt. And we no longer engage in Chamberlain reasoning, trying to triage whether circumstances are that significant or not. All right, so I won't speak to slides 10 and following. The facts and issue will be determined by the elements of a charge or the pleadings in a civil case. If evidence is relevant, it is admissible. So it's then on the freeway. And then you need to consider whether it is excluded under one of the heads of exclusion that we'll keep looking at as time goes on or whether it comes back to one of the residual discretions which relate to the competing analysis of probative value and prejudicial effect. Now, any questions or comments, welcome as we go. So some useful extracts from Odgers, um, who is the genius when it comes to evidence and who has lots and lots of illustrations to offer. As far as our uh, examination of the law, look please to section 135 and following. We'll revisit 138, which relates to the exclusion of illegally or improperly obtained evidence. And at this point, please, I'd just like to foreshadow with you what 135, 136 and 137 mean in particular. So let me focus your attention on slide 14, which you can then dig out um, after watching or listening. So 135, 136 and 137 require you adeptly to shift from the relevance test to the probative value versus prejudicial effect evaluation. So once the evidence is admitted, under 135 and 137, the court may refuse to admit the evidence or must refuse to admit the evidence if in the case of 135, which applies to both civil and criminal cases, its probative value is substantially outweighed by the risk of prejudice, by the risk the jury will be misled or confused, it's an undue waste of time, or it unnecessarily demeans the deceased in a criminal proceeding for a homicide offence, which is an interesting and fairly recent inclusion into the law. So as far as your um, tips and tricks in this area, Consider what probative value is, which is the force to which the evidence indicates a fact and issue or disindicates, that's not a word, points away from a fact and issue. So the probative value is the force, the scale to which the particular evidence links to a fact and issue. Probative value is not evaluated in that item looking at it by itself. It's looked at in the context of the rest of the party's case. As far as prejudice is concerned, we'll keep revisiting this, but a working definition of prejudice is the risk that the jury would be misled in its reasoning process. So as I've said before, don't confuse probative value and prejudicial effect in the sense that an accused is prejudiced if they think they're at risk of being convicted. Because if an accused is properly convicted by admissible evidence and the jury carefully considering its effect, then that's that's actually not prejudicial at all. Prejudice is the risk the jury will be misled or will take something that's vastly inappropriate into account. Tendency and coincidence are the best examples of this because they flagrantly involve the jury's contemplation of the accused prior criminal history. So note prejudice, note probative value from a definitional standpoint. And if they're not known to you, then make sure to dig out the Judicial College publications to really drill down on a working definition. So in 135, which applies, as I've said, to civil and criminal cases, relevant evidence can be excluded if there's too much prejudice, if there's too much confusion or a waste of time versus the degree of probative value. 137 applies only in criminal proceedings and whilst 135 is a discretion, 137 is mandatory. So in a criminal proceeding, the court must refuse to admit evidence adduced by the prosecutor if its probative value is outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. 
And lastly, in 136, which applies in both criminal and civil proceedings, um, evidence can be in, but its use can be limited. So if the judge is concerned, there's a danger that particular use of the evidence might be unfairly prejudicial or it might be misleading and confusing, the court can limit the use to be made of the evidence. And that takes the form of a judicial direction. So a common example might be in a case involving tendency evidence on the part of the accused. So if evidence of the accused previous criminal history is admitted, the trial judge might be obliged to tell the jury under 136, look, this evidence, if you accept it, is admissible for this purpose, being tendency, but you absolutely mustn't reason that they're the sort of person who's more likely to commit an offence, for instance. So 136 involves careful delineation of use that is legitimate and appropriate versus the fact that the jury may be deterred or part of the evidence might be admissible to warn against the risk of prejudice. And there are examples following in relation to meanings, which you can um, take as a first draft and customise until they look like they've come from your heart. 136, please note, as per slide 16, watch this space where we'll come back to this um, when we look at the Jury Directions Act and the necessity on occasion for the trial judge to give careful jury directions as to the use that can be made of the evidence and the use that mustn't be made of the evidence. And excellent comparison of 135 and 137 at slide 17. Likewise, watch this space in relation to 138. 138 is a discretion to exclude evidence that's been improperly or illegally obtained. And we will return to this provision. It sits in the family of 135, 136, 137, but we'll return to it when we come to look at admissions and illegally obtained evidence, which will probably be in about six discussions time. All right, and cautioning of persons under 137, it fits in the same family. So just for the sake of completeness, um, I'll draw it to your attention per slide 20, but also keep it up your sleeve because we'll do a deeper dig. It helps to interpret the meaning of improperly and illegally obtained evidence. So that concludes our very first topic of about, as I've mentioned, about 150 different topics. So if anyone wants to ask any questions, as mentioned at any times, you are most welcome. So now for the first time, we've got a real live witness. So we're talking about court procedure, examination in chief, which is relatively leisurely, and then cross-examination. For the first time, I need to introduce two common law rules, Brown and Dunn and Jones and Dunkill. And while usually you don't need to know the names of cases and you don't need to know common law principle, these are ones that have to be reduced to memory. So there'll definitely be a take home message from um, this sequence of slides. So start at the starting point, slide 23. The first issue is competence and compelability. So sometimes an examiner likes to um, create a situation where we have a vulnerable witness. They might be a child who might be a family member in a criminal case, and suddenly everything is an issue. Unless a witness is competent to give evidence, they can't give evidence. If they are competent, they may not be compellable in the sense that they may be excused from giving evidence, such as family members in a criminal case. And then lastly, what we'll start in the next discussion is privilege. So they might be competent, they might be compellable, but they might still have a privilege that allows them to abstain from giving particular evidence. So on slide 23, and hopefully this will refresh memories um, that were created when you were in undergrad or postgrad study, presumed competent to give evidence unless the court finds otherwise. So there's a presumption of competence in section 12 and likewise there's a presumption of compelability. If you have a witness who is, as per bullet point three on slide 23, very young or very old, communication impeded in any way or mentally or physically unwell, consider please section 13 of the Evidence Act lack of capacity. So the way that this section works is, firstly, it's determined of voir dire in the absence of the jury if there is one. And the first issue is whether the person is competent to give evidence about a fact. Those who are young or old, communication impeded, mentally or physically unwell, may need to subject themselves to this following test. So if for any reason the person doesn't have the capacity to understand a question about the fact or doesn't have the capacity to give an answer that can be understood to a question about the fact and that capacity can't be overcome, 
then they're not competent to give evidence. So if you have a fragile, young, old, vulnerable witness, then consider the application of this 13 subsection one test. And slide 24, as you may remember, there are three possible outcomes under this section. So firstly, the first test we've just looked at. So if for one reason or another, they don't have the capacity to understand a question or they don't have the capacity to give an answer that can be understood to a question, that capacity can't be overcome, then they're not competent to give evidence and that's the end. Most people will be, so they will be competent. But there's a third category that appears in 13 subsection three to five of the Act, which I have extracted on the slide, competent to give unsworn evidence. We didn't know this at common law, we just know it under the Evidence Act. So imagine your aged witness who can't quite be understood by reason of uh, impediment to their voice. Now, next is um, a person who's competent to give evidence about a fact, so they might not have overcome the first test, but they can be competent to give unsworn evidence if the person doesn't have the, so the next question is, a person who is competent to give evidence about a fact is not competent to give sworn or affirmed evidence about the fact. If they don't have the capacity to understand in giving evidence, they're under an obligation to give truthful evidence. So what section 13, subsection three is doing, and the first number 12 should actually be replaced with 13. So on slide 12, uh, 24, please make sure that that first bullet point reads 13 and not 12. What happens here is we've got a situation where a witness is not competent. The next category is that there may be some that will be saved if they can be competent to give unsworn evidence. The question there will be under 13.3, whether the particular witness who has trouble understanding questions or their answers aren't readily understood has the capacity to understand that they have an obligation to give truthful evidence. If that witness, albeit with their communication difficulties, has the mental capacity to understand they're under an obligation to give truthful evidence, then they, they'll be considered competent to give unsworn evidence. So that's the third category. So either competent or completely not competent, or they might be competent to give unsworn evidence. Under 13 subsection four, the trial judge must give them an explanation before they continue. So the um, trial judge must give the direction. It's important to tell the truth. They may be asked questions that they don't know or can't remember the answer to. They should tell the court if this occurs and they must agree with the statements they believe are true. They should feel no pressure to agree with statements they believe are untrue. So note please that under section 13, that there is the third category that falls between competent to give sworn evidence and not competent at all. I have extracted a number of situations where the accused and the family of the accused in a criminal case um, might be considered alternatively for an accused not competent to give evidence, that is as a witness for the prosecution, and under section 18, they might be the accused family, including their spouse or de facto, their parent, their children, may seek an exception from giving evidence in a particular case, but that is just for the prosecution. And points to note, they only apply in a criminal case, not a civil case and those provisions only apply if the person is called as a witness for the prosecution. Okay, so moving on to um, examination in chief and re-examination. Um, some of this you may remember or have observed. So the, the seminal rule of examination in chief and re-examination is that leading questions are not permitted. They are questions that are suggestive of their answer so that the witness can simply say yes and adopt the contents of the leading question. In the past, questions have been asked in the exam that ask you to draft a leading question versus a non-leading question. Next question is, how are sworn and unsworn evidence treated differently if they are? Now, there is a High Court decision, um, which I'll take on notice and give you the name of in the next uh, discussion. Essentially, sworn and unsworn evidence is not treated differently as a matter of law. Whether it's treated differently may be a matter of fact for the jury. So the, the situation 
after the uh, introduction of the Evidence Act, firstly, we didn't have unsworn evidence of witnesses until the Evidence Act was brought into effect. Once the Evidence Act was introduced and witnesses could give unsworn evidence, they'd be competent to give unsworn evidence, the presumption was in practice that the absence of an oath or an affirmation really meant something. And so counsel and even trial judges would tell a jury that the oath or the affirmation was very important prior to the giving of evidence. And the fact that you may have heard a child or a person with another communication or um, cognitive difficulty giving unsworn evidence was a matter of deep significance as a question of law. The High Court has held that that's not the case. The oath or the affirmation doesn't really infect the evidence one way or another in that incredibly significant legalistic way. It'll just come back to the jury's assessment as a question of fact. So it's really procedural and it depends on the circumstances of the case, probably entirely as you would expect because we've seen children that are very, very competent witnesses even if they don't quite understand what an oath is. I think a lot of adults don't understand what an oath is. And we've also seen some adults who would manage to negotiate the oath and the evidence is not nearly as credible. Okay, slide 28. Um, there are certain exceptions to the prohibition on leading questions. These need to be known. They're in 37 subsection 1. They include introductory matters, otherwise you'd never be able to focus your witnesses' attention on the facts and issue. Matters that are not in dispute, and this is a little known one for some, expert evidence can be led. So expert evidence can be led via the asking of closed questions. Section 33 also allows police witnesses to be led through their evidence or even to read their pre-court statement. All right, the first unusual circumstance that arises in examination in chief is a witness who loses memory as to the facts that they are attempting to narrate. Now, you learnt these in your other studies before you were admitted. Note that the first division needs to be whether the witness refreshed their memory out of court or in court. If it's out of court, the um, situation is governed by Section 34 of the Evidence Act. If it's in court, then there are certain rules. The witness may be permitted to refer to a document and to use to refresh their memory, but the hurdle is leave is point one. And point two is that the document needs to have been made or produced when the events in question were fresh in the witness's memory. So you can't use a document that you've compiled on the way to court. Instead, it needs to be a document that was made when the events being narrated were utterly fresh in the memory. And then the document may be produced and read aloud if necessary so that the opposing party can make sure that it's being done accurately. And the essence of Section 32 is the refreshment of memory so that the witness is expected to be left with a memory that they can then narrate from when they're giving their evidence in chief. The written document is not supposed to take the place of evidence that's being narrated from the person's memory. So first thing first, when it comes to a scenario where a witness seems to hit a snag, as it sometimes happens in an exam problem, query whether you move straight to unfavourable witness. If it looks like they're stumbling on the facts, that to me would be a refreshing memory situation before you move to unfavourable witness. See if the witness is stumbling simply because of the stress of the obligation to narrate events, which might have happened two years earlier and consider whether you might want to stop and spend some time offering the witness the chance to refresh their memory before you then move on to point two, which is whether you can apply for leave to declare your own witness unfavourable. So coming to the end of um, what we're talking about today with quite a meaty example, and may I say that in past exams, this is a pet of the examiner. He enjoys a situation where a witness needs to be declared unfavourable under Section 38. It's acutely examinable. For reasons that will become clear in that, you manage to tick off an awful lot of law in a short time. So why do we need unfavourable witness provisions? Well, it is a remedy for the clumsiness of the prohibition on asking leading questions. So the problem is if you, you've got in examination in chief your own witness, you can't ask them leading questions or closed questions that might focus their attention 
on what you might know to be a statement and facts in that statement narrated outside court. In three situations, a remedy will be available for you and they're listed in 38.1. So a court may grant leave for a party to cross-examine its own witness. So you've called the witness, you're stuck with non-leading questions, but under 38, you may seek leave if the witness is giving evidence that is unfavourable to the party. So if the evidence that's being narrated undermines the submissions that you are ultimately to make, if they undermine the case that you are presenting, then a grant of leave may be sought. Or the second scenario is, it's explained far more articulately in the provision, the witness is prevaricating. So the witness is stuffing around when you might expect them to have a genuine memory as to the events, but for some reason they're struggling to bed down the details, then a grant of leave might be available. And lastly, if they have made a prior inconsistent statement at any time, so if any of the oral evidence that they're giving is inconsistent with a statement made outside court, then leave may be granted and the witness may be declared unfavourable. And further questions can be asked about credibility. So if there is a grant of leave, then leave may also follow for the examiner to cross-examine the witness about matters going to their credibility. Note, please, it's as per slide 30, it's determined at voir dire, and it is the main method of ensuring one's own witness does not depart from a statement made before trial. Next, could I please make another significant editorial comment here, and that is, firstly, these are questions of procedure. So we're about to deal with questions of admissibility in the context of, of credibility, which is the very next topic we're going to look at. But when it comes to our discussion of 38, 39, 42, 43, the provisions that follow, these are questions of procedure. So procedure first, admissibility second. Next is, is leave to cross-examine as unfavourable typically limited for a particular topic or at large? Well, the, the answer to that actually requires me to stop sharing the slides and start sharing the Evidence Act. So I'll bring him out of hiding. So if we have a look at the Evidence Act and Section 192, then we see that any grant of leave requires, so any grant of leave under the Evidence Act requires a trial judge to consider the effect of the grant of leave on the case before him or her. So it's a little slow to boot up, but cross, uh, whenever you see leave cross-reference in your mind, in your notes, section 192, the way that 192 of the Evidence Act works is that the trial judge is obliged to, uh, to consider the effect of the grant of leave on the conduct of the proceedings. So it could be that it adds or detracts from the amount of time. It could be that it's a very significant issue. So now that it's come up, I'll just share the screen. If because of an act, of this act, a court gives leave, the leave may be given on such terms as the court thinks fit. And the sorts of things that are taken into account relate to the extent to which to do so would be likely to add unduly to or to shorten the length of the hearing, the extent to which to do so would be unfair to a party or a witness, the importance of the evidence in relation to which the leave permission or direction is sought, the nature of the proceedings and so forth. So it would depend. If it is a relatively minor matter, so that the witness has strayed from a witness statement in one particular regard and a counsel needs assistance simply to get the answer so that they can move on to the next point, you might just grant leave to cross-examiners to that one particular point and then on with the show. But if it turns out, for instance, that the witness whom you were relying on to basically make out the prosecution case has decided to give an account that is completely inconsistent with their earlier statement, then you might think that it's very important to the prosecution case that they get a broad discretion to cross-examine, including, and this is entirely permissible, they can cross-examine about the credibility point, which is why have you changed a story? Has the accused, you know, or another person spoken to you about dot, 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 dot? 
So really it depends on the circumstances of the case and in any case, criminal or civil, section 192 requires the trial judge really to think about how the grant of leave affects the conduct of the particular trial. Back to the um, slides, the last couple of points that I'll mention before we break and recommend for the next discussion are um, prior consistent statements generally not admissible. Who has managed to slip out from the muting? Just remute you. Oh, good, you've muted yourself. Thank you very much. Um, so, in relation to prior consistent statements, generally not admissible if you're just relying on the fact that out of court the person has said the same thing but they might be rendered admissible under the credibility rules of admissibility, which we're just about to turn to. So procedure, we're not quite there yet in relation to prior consistent statements. They're not usually adduced in examination in chief. And the very last observations to note are the Jones and Dunkel situation. This relates to evidence in chief. If it is suggested that a party has failed to call a witness, has failed to tender documents or other evidence, and it's unexplained and it's significant, then at common law, this could give rise to an inference that the uncalled evidence would not have assisted the party. So Jones and Dunkel scenario is that a party has concluded their case in chief and you're left thinking, well, there was a significant witness who was not called and really should have been called. At common law, if there was an unexplained failure by a party to give that evidence or to call that particular witness or tender documents or ask questions, then it may lead to an inference that it would not have assisted the party. And the common law position was that applied in civil cases and it could apply in limited circumstances in criminal cases, but only to the prosecution and not to the accused. The situation now is, um, and we're right at the very end of today's discussion, it still applies in civil cases, but it has been replaced by Section 43 of the Jury Directions Act in criminal cases. So in criminal cases, there's no longer a common law discretion to give a Jones and Dunkel direction. In a criminal case where the prosecution fails to call or question a witness without providing a reasonable explanation, defence can only seek a direction under Section 43 of the Jury Directions Act. Why have I raised that so early in our uh, discussion? Because it goes hand in hand with a case in chief. So we're up to the calling of witnesses. The procedure is that a party has not called a witness, has not asked questions you might expect them to, and Jones and Dunkel is assessed uh, fairly regularly. But we'll revisit Jones and Dunkel when we come to look at the Jury Directions Act in the context of criminal procedure. I'll remind you of the fact that the common law direction still applies in civil cases. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.